Welcome, everybody. We are heading down the stretch to Turkey Day. So don't eat anything till Thursday. <laughs> that way you'll have capacity, right? We have uh, started our series last weekend. It's just three weekends long. Kyle's going to finish it off next weekend. But we're talking about how to establish a thankful mindset so that we're always thinking about Thanksgiving, not just one day a year. And uh, as you think about what you're thankful for, we focused on the fact that it needs to start with, with God and his greatness. We need to start thinking, first of all, about how great God is. Then, then if I focus on God's greatness, I have so much to be thankful for. And then I can see myself the right way and I can see you the right way. Today I want to talk about being thankful when things aren't going well. How do you, how do you, how do you be filled with thankfulness when when you're suffering, when you are experiencing hardships? I'm going to try to answer that today. And I think if we could answer that today and find out the, the secret, so to speak, of doing that, it'll really change our lives and have, a, I think, a pretty profound effect on the people who are around us. But before we, we get into that, uh, I'm guessing that probably this coming Thursday at some point, you and family or friends, whether by phone or in person, are going to talk about some of the things that you're thankful for. Have you ever wondered what uh, kids are thankful for? Have you ever asked your, your, especially your young kids, what they're thankful for? If you haven't, I'd encourage you to do that. I decided to find out what uh, elementary age kids are thankful for, and I looked up some things, and, and I found some interesting answers. So, for instance, Shyla, who is eight, said, I'm thankful for firemen and policemen for catching the bad guys, because bad guys can do a lot of stuff to us. Malcolm, who is six, said... I'm thankful for my family so that I don't have to be alone all the time because they can do good things. And if I were alone, I couldn't cook myself dinner and breakfast. It's got the right priorities, right? Uh, Deanna ate, said, I'm thankful for my family, my food, my house, my little sister, even though sometimes she bugs me. <laughs> Kids are honest, aren't they? Uh, this next young lady said, I'm thankful for my sister and for my family because they help me feel better if I'm upset or something, maybe they could help me feel better. Seems like she was concerned about feeling better. Uh, this next young man said, I'm thankful for my friend Lily. She gave me two Pokemon cards today. I didn't know they were still popular. I'm thankful for my dad and my mom. They read me a story every day, and it's really special to me. It's interesting, Pokemon cards, then mom, then dad. All right. Or this next child said, I am thankful for my baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> and uh, finally, finally, this child uh, who is, I just try to imagine the family this child comes from, must be extremely candid and practical family, said, I am thankful for toilet paper. It is helpful. <laughs> and he's right. And he's right. Moving on. In all seriousness, what are the things you're thankful for? I'm guessing a lot of us would say family and friends. We'd say good job, maybe, or finances, or we'd say good health, um, or we would say, you know, good church, I hope, <laughs> um, or, or something else, you know, that's been really positive going on in our lives. But what do you do when you get into that place in your life and, and it feels like there's really nothing to be thankful for? When something happens in your life that kind of clouds over all the good things that are there, 
And all you can see and focus on, like we talked about last weekend, are the negative things. Like loss. I think this is a time of year that's really hard for people who've lost loved ones who are close to them. It's hard to be thankful when that person you love, your spouse, your kids, your parents, that dear, dear, dear friend is no longer here. It can be hard to feel thankful. Or uh, sometimes, you know, we get into a bad place in our relationships. It's hard to be thankful when your marriage isn't going well. It's hard to be thankful when your kids are prodigal or when your parents are getting divorced or when someone you thought was your dear friend has you know, betrayed you or, or done something else that's so hurtful. It's, it's hard to be thankful. It's hard to be thankful when um, you're behind you know, financially and it just feels like you can't catch up ever and there's things you'd like to do and like to have and like to buy, but you can't do it. And, and you know, it's the grind, and, and it's just hard to be thankful. It's hard to be thankful when, when your health has been attacked, you know, when you're suffering from a chronic disease or you, you get the news that you have cancer or, or you've had a heart attack or something like that. It can, it's, it's just so frustrating. It's hard to be filled with thanks. And it's hard to be thankful when you feel lonely. It's hard to feel thankful when you're depressed and discouraged. How in those times, how, how can you be thankful? It's, does it even matter? I mean, do you always have to be thankful? Well, what does the Bible tell us? Our passage is very simple today. It's like one verse. And I want to read it to you. Here's what it says. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's, let's say that aloud together so we all get it. Ready? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, did we read that right? Does it actually say give thanks in all circumstances? Yes. Well, maybe Paul was, you know, maybe Paul was having a really good day when he wrote that verse, Right? I mean, if he had a bad day, maybe he would have written it differently. Does it say that, is it, is, is it say that again anywhere else? And the answer is yes. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes to another group of believers, and he says, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read it with me. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have all and anything, and now we have everything. I think it's pretty clear. What Paul is saying to us is that thankfulness is inclusive. It is not contingent on our circumstances. It's not contingent on my relationships. It's not contingent on my situation. <clears throat> it's a command. It is God's will for me to be thankful. But how do you do that? How, how can you be full of thanks when it feels like there's nothing in your life that's all been taken away, that's all falling apart when you feel less and not full. How are we supposed to do that? And the answer is in a little phrase that the Apostle Paul uses in those verses, or in the first one, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and it's actually a favorite phrase, and I'll show you where he uses it in some other places. But before, before we get to that phrase, I want to tell you a story. 
And it comes right out of the book of Acts. It's in chapter 16. And uh, I wish I could take you there with me. So let me try to do this in, in retelling the story. I want you to imagine that, that we have been all transported to modern-day Turkey or in biblical times, Asia Minor. We're standing in this port city called Troas. In front of us is the Aegean Sea. And the reason we're here is because Paul is there, Silas is there, Timothy is there, and Dr. Luke are there. And we're doing an investigation. What's going on? We find out that they tried to go north toward Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus said, nope, you can't go there. They tried to go southwest, but again, the Spirit of Jesus said, you can't go there. And they're kind of just left there waiting and wondering, where are we supposed to go? And then one night, Paul has a vision. And in his vision, he sees a man from Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is all the way across the sea of the Aegean Sea in Greece. In what will one day in the future be called the continent of Europe. And the man from Macedonia calls out to Paul and says, Come over here. We need your help. Paul gets up the next day and he informs Silas and Timothy and Luke. He says, I think I know where God wants us to go. So we follow them and we get in a boat. And if the winds are favorable, in two days we are at the port of Neapolis on the very edge of Greece there, northern Greece. We step out of the boat and we make our trek all the way up to a city, a little city, but a bustling city called Philippi, or some people call it Philippi. Now Philippi, or Philippi, is named after the father of Alexander the Great who was Philip. He started out as a Roman colony and then quickly grew into this, this, uh, this city. And it was mostly populated by former Roman soldiers. They would kind of retire there. And that's why it got the nickname Little Rome. Because it behaved and acted as though it was Rome. And you did everything in Philippi the Roman way. And that's where Paul and his entourage arrived. And as was Paul's custom, he would always try to find a synagogue because that's where he would start with the Jewish people. But in order for there to be a synagogue in a town, there have to be at least 10 male Jews and their families. And so Paul can't find a synagogue, which means there are probably not very many Jews here, so he can't, you know, he can't really start with them. So he decides on the Sabbath to take Luke and Timothy and Silas with them, and they go down to the river. I've been to the ruins of Philippi. They're phenomenal. There's a, uh, a tributary from the river that still flows through there. It's like a mile out of town. I've actually baptized somebody in it. And he goes down to that river because Paul knows that if there are any Jews or God-fearers who are Gentiles who believe in the God of the Jews, they, they don't want anything to do with all the pagan idols of Greek mythology, he knows they'll be down there on the Sabbath because they don't want to be anywhere near the pagan temples and you know, all the idols and things. And sure enough, he finds this woman. Her name is Lydia. She's a very successful businesswoman from a place called Thyatira. She's a, se- a-, a seller of a-, of a purple cloth made from a very rare dye. And she's a God-fearer. She's a Gentile, but she respects the God of the Jews and is trying to figure out how to connect to him. And Paul shares with her the good news about who Jesus is and how he can change 
her life and what he came to do. And so she and her household listened on the edge of the other seats, so to speak. And but when Paul's done, they want Christ in their life and they receive Christ into their lives. And they're so excited that right there, Paul and perhaps Silas, the others, baptized them in the river. It is the best day of their lives. And we don't know how many more days Paul continued on there telling people about Jesus, but whether it's 10 or 12 days or maybe two weeks, Paul would talk to anybody who would listen to him, Jew or Gentile. He would tell them about Jesus. But there was kind of a, an annoyance in Paul's life. And the annoyance was actually this, this slave girl who was demonized. And she had the ability to kind of tell the future. And a syndicate owned her. And she made them no small amount, amount of money because, I mean, she could tell people their fortunes, their futures. And unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, while Paul was around, she would just sometimes bark out in what must have been an eerie voice, and she would announce to everybody, these men are servants of the Most High God. They are here to tell you how to be saved. And she would do that over and over and over again. And Acts 16 tells us that finally Paul got really exasperated with her. And with these men, and he turned around and looked at her and he said, I command you to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And the demon left her. And for the first time in who knows how long she was in her right mind, it was the best day of her life. But it was going to be one of the worst days for Paul and Silas. Because when the syndicate realized that their money-making slave no longer could do what she did, they grabbed Paul and they grabbed Silas. I don't know what happened to Timothy and Luke, but evidently Paul and Silas were kind of the guys that were out front and doing all of this. They grabbed them and they dragged them down to Via Ignatia all the way into the center of the city. A mob quickly formed. People didn't even know what they were shouting and upset about, but they just wanted to be part of the mob. The city officials saw what was happening. They got really nervous because there's one thing Rome did not tolerate, and that was riots in her empire. And if word got back to Rome, what was going on in Philippi, pretty soon the Roman government, the authorities would be breathing down their necks. So they hushed everybody down as quickly as possible. And then they did not give, they did not give Paul and Silas an opportunity to defend themselves. They, gave, they did not give them a fair trial. They gave them no trial. They just immediately asked what was going on. The syndicate said, these men are teaching foreign customs that are illegal for Romans to follow and to, and to believe. And officials ordered the lictors to take their canes and to strike these men on the back. And the way it would have been done is their, their tops would have been stripped off of them. They would have been tied to a pillar. And the lictor would stand behind with that cane and he would just beat their backs you know, when they took Paul's shirt off, I think they would have been surprised by the scars that were already there, the knobs, the, the cracks in his back from where he'd been beaten so many times before. And they laid into these guys. And the more the people cheered, the, the more they laid into them until finally they stopped. Either they were tired or they were fearful these guys were going to die on the spot. They grabbed Paul, they grabbed Silas, they dragged him to the jail, and they threw them into the inner prison where the jailer locked their legs in stocks. They threw their clothes in after them. And there sat Paul and Silas. The blood was no longer running down their backs, but it was now congealing. 
and stung, it burned. They couldn't lean back on the wall. That would be excruciating. Their legs were going numb from the stocks. And I want to ask you, in your mind, your imagination, what would you do if that were you? What would you do? I think about it, and I'm afraid that I would be so angry, so resentful. Angry and resentful toward those guys who own this girl, toward the mob, toward the lictors who beat me, toward the officials who didn't give me a fair trial. But here's the thing I fear the most. I think I might be angry and resentful towards God. How about you? It's not fair, God. Been crisscrossing this country for you. I've already been beaten enough times. And this is how you reward me? This is how you treat your servants? You, you, you allow the bad, you allow the corrupt to be blessed, and it seems like you just take it out on your own. When I get out of here, if I get out of here, I quit. I'm resigning. I'm done. I'm going back to Tarsus. Going to make tents. I'm finished with it. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like just <sighs> quitting on Monday with God? I'm just done. I don't get you, God. I pray, I serve, I share, I give. I bend over backwards, I put up with so much, and this is how you allow me to be treated. Loss, health, finances, job, relationships. It seems like people who don't love you, who don't know you, who work against you, get further ahead than I do. It is hard to be thankful when things seem to be going wrong in your life, right? How do you do it? Well, I told you there is this phrase, and that's what I want to finish by focusing on. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Let's read it aloud together. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And the phrase I want you to focus on is in Christ Jesus. Let's say it together. In Christ Jesus. Paul says, in everything, no matter what the situation is, listen, it's God's will for you to be thankful, right? But notice the connection here. The thankfulness is because of this supernatural relationship that you and I have as Christians in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a favorite phrase of the apostles. And I want to read to you several texts where he uses it. For instance, in Romans 8, 1, he says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are, say it with me, in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 3, 26, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. In Philippians 4, 19, he says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory, say it with me, in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 6, 7, he says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm, say it with me, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us with me 
in Christ Jesus. And just one more passage, 2 Timothy 2.1. You then, my son, he says to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul's fascination with this whole idea of in Christ Jesus? Well, it is a very, very difficult phrase to explain. And the reason why, it is somewhat metaphysical. It means to be in such a relationship with Christ that he has influence over our mind and our hearts, our emotions. And I want to try to explain it to you by using this crude illustration. Crude because how do you explain something so mysterious as in Christ Jesus? But we'll try. I want you to imagine for a moment this represents you. Your hand represents me. And let's say, God forbid, you have cancer. Okay? And a friend, this hand, a friend comes and they sit right next to you. And they encourage you. They tell you that they love you. They tell you that we're going to trust God together in all of this. They, they share scripture verses with you. They, they try to bring hope into your life. In fact, they even, they even put their arm around you. I don't know about you, but if I was going through a hard time and somebody did that for me, I, I would really appreciate it, wouldn't you? And some of you perhaps right now have somebody like that in your life. They're doing that for you because of what you're going through. There's just something really precious about somebody who comes and sits with you. And sometimes they don't even have to say anything. Just the fact that they're next to you means a lot. But you know, as close and as meaningful as that is, it's it's still, it's still not what you totally need because they can only be with you. And I fear that a lot of times when you and I think about our relationship with God, especially when I look at our young adults down here, I think we tend to think about God as somebody who's with us. He's with me in school. He's with me in my job. He's with me in my home. He's with me in the car. He's with me in all these places. And there's truth to that. God, in that sense, God is with us. But the Bible says it's more than just with. He's in. So I want you to imagine for a moment what would happen if that friend, right, who's sitting next to you, all of a sudden merged into you. See, that's what's weird, huh? They merged into you. Somehow, they became intertwined with you, and suddenly, you were actually drawing from their physical strength in your weakness. You were drawing from their hope. You were drawing from their faith. You were drawing from their encouragement. They were feeding, their presence in you is giving to you what, you know, what you needed. And not only that, but they go a step further. They actually absorb the cancer out of you into their being. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? You would think, oh my goodness, what a friend. That's what Jesus does for you and me. He comes to live in us, but listen, while he was on the cross, he literally absorbed, as it were, the sin out of us and, and took that sin on the cross and, and died our death for us. So when he comes into us, he brings this newness of life. And yes, my body is going to die. It's going to, I've still been in a sinful world with all the consequences of that, but his presence in me gives me this hope of what is to come. So no matter how bad the circumstances are, no matter how bad the suffering is, 
There's something I can be really thankful for, and that is what? Christ in me, or I am in Christ. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about the benefits that come from knowing that I am in Christ, that you are in Christ, that that Christ is in us. And here's the first benefit. Here's here's the first thing that that results and why I can be thankful. It's because Christ Christ is in me in whatever I'm facing. Say it with me. Christ is in me in whatever I'm facing. He's not with me, but he's in me. And man, sometimes, you know, what we go through is hard. And to know that Christ is in us. Now, I'll share something a little bit personal with you. And I debated doing this, but I I try my preaching to be somewhat vulnerable with you because it's so easy for pastors or preachers to get up and say these things. And you sit there, because I've sat where you are, and just go, if they only knew what they're really talking about. It's easy to say that. Have you ever experienced it? Well, I haven't experienced it personally to this degree, but I got a phone call about three weeks ago from my youngest brother. Actually, he's my only brother. He's younger than me. And he said to me, he said, um, I have to tell you something. I said, what's going on? He said, he said, I just found out I have stage four cancer. And it doesn't look good. And man, I tell you, it just took the wind out of me. Because it's, He's my brother. He's the last of my family, so to speak. And we've been dialoguing back and forth, mainly through text, because he's been pretty miserable in the hospital and things. And I asked him how he was doing, and he texted me the other day, and he said, I'm not afraid to die. And he gave me John 16, 33, where Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, give I to you. You see, I'm in this, I'm in this cell right now called, called cancer and suffering, but I'm okay because God's in it with me. See what I'm saying? He's not with me. He's in it with me. And that's the peace that, that the world can't give. The world can only come beside you. Christ comes in you. Now think about this. Let's move on to the next principle. My identity is not in my circumstances or what people say about me, but in Christ and what he thinks about me. That's a little complicated. Say it with me. Ready? My identity is not in my circumstances or what people say about me, but in Christ and what he thinks about me. See, this is so important. Why? Because most of us find our worth, our value, our identity in our, you know, our body shape, our looks, our physicality our health, our job, our talents, our gifts, our abilities, our success, our relationships, allow us to find our worth and our value in what other people think about us. And that's a horrible way to live. Because what happens when, when what I've placed my worth and my value in diminishes or is taken away from me or isn't there anymore? Or what happens when those people I was counting on to give me my sense of worth and value and dignity suddenly turn on me and and yell at me and criticize me and make me feel bad and, and or, you know, uh, deny me or hurt me in some way. That's a horrible way to live. 
In fact, there's a passage that I want to read to you. We've actually studied it before. It's found in 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul says to the Christians there, he says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court, meaning any human opinion. Indeed, I do not even judge myself, because I don't know, I don't always have the best opinion of myself. It's the Lord, he says, who evaluates me. It's the, it's the Lord's view of me that matters. So as Tim Keller says, in essence, what Paul is saying is, I honestly don't care what you think about me. And I don't care what I think about myself. All that matters to me is what God thinks about me. And I know for a fact the scriptures teach me that God loves me and he loves you. And he thinks highly of you or he would not have given his son to die for you and for me. That is such a, that's a much better way to live, isn't it? I don't have to worry about what God thinks of me. If I'm his child, if I've given my life to him, I know he loves me. And you know, even if I'm not his child, I'm an unbeliever, I know he still, he loves this world for God so loved the world. But people, you know, can choose to reject him. They can refuse that love. Here's another important principle. Don't confuse gratitude with thanksgiving. Say it with me. <clears throat> Don't confuse gratitude with thanksgiving. You say, what, what do you mean by that? Well, gratitude is all about feelings. It's all about emotions. You know, think of the word gratify. When do you feel most gratified? You feel most gratified when, when your emotions are you know, feel good, right? I had a big bowl of ice cream yesterday and I felt gratified. <laughs> Thankfulness or thanksgiving is an action, it is not a feeling. It's an action and not a feeling. To give thanks is an action. So I give thanks regardless of how I feel. And I may feel lousy. Thanks is an action. It's, a, it's an act of the will. Which then takes us to this next principle, and that is this. Cultivating, creating a thankful attitude in difficult circumstances, look, comes by realizing that suffering brings me into a genuine encounter with Christ, the Christ who is in me. Now think about that for a minute, okay? We'll leave it up there for a moment. In other words, None of us want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. But when we go through suffering, honestly, it's an opportunity for us to come into contact with Christ who is in us in a way we would not otherwise. Let me give you another illustration. Years ago, Marsha and my wife found this old buffet, kind of an antique. Was it painted or stained when you first got it? It was stained, right? But it was in bad shape. It had so much, you know, layers and layers of stain. So we brought it home, and her dad came to visit her. Dad's a very handyman, and, and he worked on that thing, I don't know, for a week or so, sanding away layer after layer after layer, until finally you saw the actual wood grain. And that, that thing that was so ugly, and I thought, why does she want this? All of a sudden, it was very beautiful because the layers were peeled away, and you got to the true color. Listen. Suffering does that to you. It peels away the layers of things we tend to look to and trust in and think are going to give us value and worth. 
and, and solve all our problems. All that gets stripped away. And suddenly you realize all that matters is my relationship with Christ, his relationship with me. It's like, like with my brother right now. It's kind of vicarious, right? Because we're, we're four years apart, but there's, he's, he's my blood, right? He's my brother. As I just think about what he's going through right now, in our conversations, more and more all that matters is Christ. And it makes me think of my own mortality. You ever notice that when somebody near you is suffering or facing death or whatever it is, it always makes you, at least I think it does, makes you think about your own mortality. And all of a sudden you begin to realize what really matters in life. It's not all this stuff. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's my relationship with Christ. And when you're able to get to that place, listen, even in the midst of suffering, there can be joy. There can be thankfulness. I have Jesus. He has me. And I know where I'm going. I can even look forward to where I'm going. Which then brings us to the final principle, and that's this. We can be thankful in our suffering because God can use it to glorify himself and make us a witness of his presence to others. You know, sometimes people wonder, how can God ever use me in my suffering? How can I be of any value to him? May I say that you are probably the greatest witness in your suffering that in any other point in your life. Because when you suffer, people look and they listen and they want to know, has this God you talk about, does he make a difference in your suffering or not? Because if he doesn't, I'm not interested in him. But if he does, I want to know about him because I see suffering every day. And the best way for me to to answer that, illustrate it, is to tell you to turn to Acts 16. Let's finish the story, okay? Acts 16, if you want to follow along, you can use the Pew Bible or you have your own open. But Acts chapter 16, verse 23, here's what it says. They, Paul and Silas, were severely beaten and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> Isn't that something? I don't know if I'd be singing Kumbaya after being beaten like that. The singing praise to God. Why? Because they're focused on not their beating, not on what's happening. They're focused on Christ in them. And man, they became so aware of Christ in them, they couldn't help but sing praise that they would be worthy to be counted, you know, to be able to suffer with Christ. Now watch what happens. It says, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Verse 26. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was, broke, was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. That must have been some 
baptism at night, right? He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Notice the sequence. They're in prison. They're in Christ. Despite their suffering, they give praise and worship to him. And as they're thanking God and praising him and worshiping him, there is an earthquake and it's a God quake. It's a miracle. Because it says their cha- the stocks fell off, the chains fell off. An earthquake does not make your chains fall off. It can loosen them from the wall. But there must have been a mighty angel going through there tapping each, each uh, chain and tapping each uh, coupling that was on their wrists and their feet, setting them all free. Remember I told you, if you learn to thank God, you experience miracles. And Paul keeps them all there. I have no idea how he did that. <laughs> he kept them all there. That jailer was sure that they had all run away and he was going to kill himself because he knew he'd be held accountable for those prisoners. And Paul says, stop. And the next thing you know, the whole family has converted and given their lives to Christ. Do you see? Do you see how God used that suffering to save that jailer and his household? And I'm guessing the other prisoners. Do you see that if Paul had not suffered like that, the jailer may never, never have come to know faith in Christ? Your suffering is not by accident. There is a purpose in it. Ask yourself, God, how do you want to use this in my life to show your grace to others, even in death? And you will see miracles take place. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, Thank you for loving us. Thank you in the midst of our trials and our suffering and our challenges that we, oh God, we can be thankful. Not for the trial, not for the circumstances, but thankful that you are not just in it with us. You are in us, in it. And that gives us the ability to say thank you. Thank you for being in us. Now, please, Lord, use us. Everybody here has a choice today how you're going to deal with your suffering. You can let it drive you from God or drive you into the relationship you have with God.